Hello, everyone. This is Artemis with the Uncivilized Podcast. Today, I have with me Jessica Kraft, author of Why We Need to Be Wild, One Woman's Quest for Ancient Human Answers to 21st Century Problems. Jessica, how are you doing? Hey, good. How are you doing? Did I say that right? That's a pretty That's a pretty long title. Did I get that all? Oh, such a mouthful. Yeah, it's not my title. It's the publishers, and we're going to talk about that. But yeah, there's a lot of information in the title. All right, very cool. It's kind of like my zine, but I chose it by self and people still make fun of it, so I have to stick with it. So it is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Jessica, who is Jessica Kraft? And how did you go from a journalist of liberal liberal ideas, liberal persuasion, to an advocate and practitioner of rewilding and anarcho primitivism? Thank you for that question. Okay, I will attempt to answer that. Um, life history. 45 years in the making now. Um, I would say I, I always had a radical tinge as a adolescent and like college activist, but certainly, you know, definitely coming from kind of the standard left, um, w- was always driven by ideas and curiosity. And so programs. I was like, how can I be learning and being curious? So I'm going to write, I'm going to be a journalist. Um, and, uh, unfortunately that happened in the Bay area. And I say, unfortunately, just because of the economic, um, hothouse that that part of the country is. Mm-hmm. And so like so many people, I was sort of forced between idealism and economic reality. Um, and for several years ended up working as a journalist slash content producer in the tech world, the heart of with startups and um, venture capital. And, you know, I'm feeling very uncomfortable. So like, huh, taking up, putting on my anthropologist hat and being like, well, what's this culture about? And what do, what do they have to say about reality? And um, what I kept finding was, you know, this absolute belief and dependence on uh, techno utopia, right? And this idea that no matter what problem humanity is facing, uh, whether it's I can't get food to my house fast enough, or it's what's going on with the climate, or it's, you know, forest, uh, reforestation, the answer was always more tech, more, um, more data coming in through various sensors, and more modification of biological organisms, you know, through whatever means. And I had sort of an epiphany moment that I write about in the book, where I was taking a stroll in the outside, outside this like super on trend, really fancy Silicon Valley venture capitalist office, of ridiculous. Um, and I was like, I gotta get out of here. These LED lights are terrible. Go walking in the gardens surrounding the place and realize they've planted all native plants, right? So the stuff that would normally grow there was growing there. It was just in more orderly rows. It had been dominated and placed in a certain fashion to make it more appealing or whatever. And I was like, this is so silly. Why don't they just let the stuff grow as it grows? And then as I was uh, transfixed by like a manzanita bush, I looked up and there was a live wild beehive. Um, And never seen that before in my life, right? So confession, I didn't grow up in the outdoors. I didn't grow up going camping or being a naturalist. And so this is my first time. neither did I, so neither did I. I can admit no, that. You're good. I, I feel like we can make up for it deliberately. And that's the rest of my story. But so they're transfixed mm. by this beehive. I'm watching them come in and out of the hive. You know, they've all got a purpose. They've all got a job. Yet, you know, it's, it's not under duress. They're not being bossed around. There's, there's no economic scarcity here. There's enough honey for everybody. Uh, they're doing what they evolved to do. And it all just seems so perfect and right. It was one of those sort of moments of sublime unity with me and nature. And then um, behind me pulls up like a, you know, four wheel vehicle, some kind of ATV and a maintenance guy's there. And he's like looking at the beehive, like, oh crap, we got to get rid of that. 
So I rushed right. back in the office. I was telling people about it and they're like, yeah, we don't, we don't go outside. I mean, <laughs> I'm kind of exaggerating here, but it was like, I was the one who was always needing the breath of fresh air. Uh, and yet at the same time, these were the same folks, my colleagues who were complaining, I'm so stressed out, I'm overwhelmed. You know, I can't parent my kid because I'm always working. Um, you know, an, an endless uh, litany, unending litany of complaints from them about this lifestyle that they were just continually perpetuating. Um, so I kind of trace it back to that moment of being like, oh my God, I have to get out of here. I have to be like the bee in the wild hive. So then, you know, got introduced to rewilding through various podcasts. Um, we all know those folks, but they super influenced me. And it was mostly on a health kind of vector for the for the first couple of years that I was engaging that stuff. I was looking at my own health, you know, low vitamin D levels, this constant stress and anxiety, inability to sleep, um, you know, yet I knew that things could be better and I knew that it was nature that was going to heal me. So the getting outside, the getting exercise, et cetera. So I followed the rewilding path down the, down the health trail for a while. And then um, that just seemed so siloed. It was like, well, okay, if we're wearing the paleo or if we're eating the paleo diet, we're wearing the barefoot shoes, we're using the squatty potty, we're attempting to mimic all of these elements of uh, our sort of evolutionary or, uh, or environment of evolutionary adaptation. We're trying to be like the hunter gatherers that we still are in our brains and bodies, but yet we're only applying it uh, to certain areas of life. And so as I explored mm. more, I'm, you know, realizing, no, no, it, it's everything, right? It's how you talk to people. It's how you communicate, socialize. It's your work. Do you have enough autonomy? Uh, are you feeling self-directed or are you you know, in this complete delayed return world of like waiting for the day that you'll reap your harvest. Um, and then, you know, and it also has to do with your, your mental outlook, your psychology, how you're living. Um, and it always seemed absurd to me that, you know, even if people understood, yes, we need to have this quote unquote paleo lifestyle, the, the, the way they chose to implement it was again, more and more industrialized products, um, you know, like your ketone tea shipped from China with the, the green tea extract and you're driving in your gas powered vehicle to the gym where you're running on a treadmill, watching a screen, you know, when all of that could be radically simplified by just ditching it all, opting out and uh, being outside right. most of the time. So that then led to an exploration of who are the folks living with, uh, you know, attempting to kind of get back to this paleolithic lifestyle in more areas than just diet and fitness. Uh, so then I discovered folks at the at ancestral skills gatherings, you know, um, people training others in the ancient human uh, skills that we all have a birthright to learn. So the, the fire, friction fire and shelter building and finding water, finding food, learning local ecology. I mean, it was a whole worldview shift for me. And, uh, and I'm just so grateful that you know, there were lots of free resources out there to learn all this stuff, especially with podcasts. So kudos to you for perpetuating that free knowledge. Um, yeah. And then, you know, I just, I just got into this idea that, okay, so if human societies evolved in these small nomadic hunter gatherer clans, uh, you can say almost completely sustainable regenerative way with very little social breakdown, with very little psychological or physical health ailments. Um, well, shit, that's like, the, that's the solution to everything. And I know that's a romantic vision. 
but the data, the ethnographic data that I looked at from bioanthropologists who study current day hunter-gatherer communities, you know, this is still the case for them, uh, that they, ha they don't have these massive social ills that, you know, we in Western industrialized civilization are constantly suffering from and also normalizing, right? Like we kind of think it's normal to have all this trauma from our separation from nature. Um, so, so then I was like, okay, um, I guess all institutions have to go and <laughs> bureaucracy is done and the state and, you know, it was just, let's throw out everything and see what we're left with. And I was really beholden by that vision, um, reading Daniel Quinn, reading Kevin Tucker, um, even reading, you know, like a mainstream author like Yuval Noah Harari, who wrote Sapiens. And I don't like the direction that he takes that in, but he certainly laid out, you know, with many flaws, um, our heritage, 300,000 plus years living as uh, hunter-gatherers in these small anarchic bands. So it all just seems so convincing to me that like we are, we are meant uh, through the evolutionary process, which I, I do trust, we're meant you know, from the foundation of nature and every uh, animist spirit that inhabits every part of nature, we're meant to live in harmony with it. Um, so, so, how, so then how do we live, right? And that's what the book discusses. And uh, I just don't try to rely on my own insights for that, because I think there's so many people out there who have experimented with a hunter-gatherer lifestyle and, um, you know, kind of re-indigenizing themselves uh, and I, and I know that's a fraught term to use too, right? Like, so I had to dive into all the issues of um, indigenous land rights and who who really is able to quote unquote rewild today in that it takes a lot of privilege, it takes a lot of resources, it takes intention, education, um, just to do these fundamental things that that I believe is, is all of our birthright as a human um, and treading very carefully on that territory where, you know, it is incredibly unfair that folks who live on the land where I'm living now um, are unable to to use the resources as their ancestors once did, as they may want to be doing today. Um, so, so just opening myself up to like exchange, mutual education with a bunch of different indigenous folks in California and beyond, and that was you know that was also incredibly edifying and inspiring for me too. So yeah, does that? <laughs> Start us out. Yeah. yeah, you just summarized the whole book. Isn't that incredible, guys? Review is over. It's done. There no. it is. <laughs> There's one more thing, though, that I didn't mention, which I think is like so key, uh, which is that the, the book is from the perspective of a mother. And mm -hmm. I was really kind of upset that whenever I was encountering uh, kind of the hardcore rewilding world or the bushcraft world, even wilderness skills education, that it was so male dominated and it was so influenced by popular culture mythology about the lone man in the wilderness sort of you know hetero fighting the demons inside his head and outside his head and kind of conquering nature in order to survive and perhaps protect others but really it was about him kind of achieving this heroic quest yeah malatha and i a previous guest who's indigenous we we have a term for those type of people uh and it's either uh frontiersmen or yes. or homesteader because it's the same type of psychology of like it's not i want to integrate with nature it's i want to show even without technology i can still dominate it right there's still like a, a, an urge to overcome nature as opposed to like integration with it and the humility yes. that comes with that and the reciprocity like you got to give back right. to it too you got to be in relationship yeah okay so that's how i'll refer to it now the frontiers man 
But, uh, but yeah, I mean, if you look at um, ethnographies of most immediate return hunter-gatherer communities, it's, it's not about a solo survivor. It, it, you know, you really do need the community and the group, and there's an essential role for mothers and children and uh, non-hetero males to play in, in the, the group's survival and in their thriving and in their rituals and their culture. And so it, it just seems to me like our, our culture right now, where we're beginning this fascination, this sort of getting into the more mainstream of romanticizing hunter-gatherers, but also looking at the truth of the health of that lifestyle in all dimensions, um, that we're forgetting that that's, that's a community lifestyle. They, they're social animals absolutely dependent on those relationships um, instead of just the, the independent individual kind of DIY. Although that is important. Every individual needs to stand alone at certain times, but but that's not the majority of the life. It's, it's in the togetherness. Um, so seeking right. that out for me and my children, I have two daughters, you know, that's part of the quest of the book. Yeah. Very, yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. And we'll eventually round back to this issue, but being the, the issue of the male dominance and like we talked about like, oh, you know, it takes a village and look how egalitarian it is. It's like, then why aren't we making an effort to reach out to people that would benefit from this? That's always been kind of like, I'm not deep into the rewilding like culture. Like I practice on my own, just, you know, by the nature of where I live and how I live, things of that nature. Um, yeah. But yeah, there's a lack of like, we talk about community and like how important community is and that civilization kills community. So like, where's the community in rewilding? Where is that mm -hmm. at? You know, it's very temporary. Yeah. Right. Right. You're there for the gathering and then it's gone mm -hmm. or whatever. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. I've heard people make really wonderful connections, but that doesn't seem to be the norm, unfortunately. Yeah. And you know, there are some spinoff communities. I mean, I know of like many, many folks who have tried to set up their own, you know, kind of eco villages uh, or you know, ancestral skills kind of communes. And uh, they're really wonderful while they last. But unfortunately, because of all of our inner trauma, right, we don't grow up knowing how to do that. And, and we don't have intergenerational groups of people trying that. It's usually folks of a certain age. Um, so I think right. those are the missing components. It's like, you know, you really need families, you need elders, you need young folks. And then I don't know how they're going to get the training in group life. But Right. People talk about Kevin Tucker says this all the time, like rewilding and, uh, this journey away from civilization. It's a generational one. It's not something I can do in my lifetime, but it's hopefully something mm -hmm. we can begin and we can carry on. Um, but yeah, no, you're identifying all the problems for sure. Yeah. Before we move on to the next one, that's been a conversation I've had with some people is this idea that we can just walk into the wild and be fine. There's so much, I mean, for those that have read Freddie Perlman's Against History Against Leviathan, or yeah, Against History Against Leviathan, um, this idea that, you know, we've internalized, we've put on the armor, we've put on the mask, right? We've internalized so much of this that the thought that we could just like walk out there and be fine. No, how do we know right. we're not carrying the, the inner logic? I wrote an essay called Spare the Child. Ooh, it's about how children, nice. how, how children are hurt and that they're broken in order to yeah. domesticate just the same way you have to break a horse. You have to break a oh, child. Yes. Oh my right? God. That's awesome. Yes. And so this song. idea that we can just walk out and be fine. Like, yeah, don't get me wrong. Like walking out there is part of the healing process. Cause you can't heal without walking out there, but walking out there is on its own, not the solution. Cause you're going to carry all of that trauma with you. Yep. No, absolutely. No. And you, I don't know if you're familiar with links building. Uh, she's a, you know, primitive skills practitioner. She just wrote a, a memoir, uh, something 
journey to rewild. And uh, she takes groups of folks over like a season of four or five months and they, they make all their own stuff to be able to take a, a totally stone age journey in the wilderness. So all their own clothes down to the band-aids and the moccasins they're wearing. Um, they prepare all sorts of pemmican and high calorie foods that they only hunt or gather, uh, build their own shelters, have buffalo hides they sleep on. And they take that all out in a pack uh, and try to subsist. And she's done this in the mountains of Eastern Washington, as well as several different spots across Europe. And mm -hmm. um, I interviewed a bunch of folks who've gone out with her. I mean, it's a wonderful experience, right? Because you're really, she calls her program Living Wild. And you do get to um, experience that group life in nature and, you know, prepare all your stuff and use all this, the, the practical skills. And she only does it for that short period of time. So it's, it doesn't prove its longevity and it is nothing like a hunter-gatherer band. But what they say is we get out there in the woods and, uh, you know, and their only references are TVs from the 80s. And, you know, it's like, how do you unpickle your mind from all of that? Right. All of the images, media images, pop culture that you've gotten in um, in lieu of what somebody who had grown up in nature would have, which would be all that instant recognition of birdsong and understanding of how the how the organisms are interrelating and where you need to be and how to read the wind. You know, so our minds are full of garbage, really, when you go out in the wilderness. And so, right. <laughs> right. That. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. And then, of course, people are just like, oh, you just need the detox. You don't have to be so radical. You just got to get off for a while. It's like, yeah, all right. Let's just keep the system in place and just, yeah, that gets into the whole thing we'll get into later. So the second question is, how did this book come about and what difficulties did you face? Didn't now, you know, I'm not a stranger to reviewing books or mm -hmm. other texts on this podcast, but I would say all of them have been through. Yeah, all of them have been through radical publishers. Yours is not. So how does someone, because yeah. you're not saying, oh, you know, there's lessons to be learned from other hunter-gatherers. You were pushing the anarcho-primitivist rewilding line and getting away with it. So what did that look like? Very great question. I don't know. Am I getting away with it? We'll see. Uh, <laughs> but I'm going to, I'm trying because no, I, re I really felt like um, I, I had a choice. I could go either way. And it seems like I was driven to to speak to my peers and the the communities that I had come from, and I knew that if I published in a smaller press, wouldn't be uh, you know wouldn't be easy to access, um, and it wouldn't be as appealing as if it comes out from Sourcebooks, which is the eighth largest publisher, the largest independent publisher in the U.S., um, highly reputed. You know, they got a lot of money, tons of books each year. So I chose that route. Um, you know, reluctantly, but with faith that like, maybe I could, I could, could, could kind of thread that needle between the off-putting radical, uh, off-putting aspects of the radicalism and then the sort of life affirming message of the, this is who we are as humans and we can be that way again. So the journey with the publisher, you know, a lot of people don't know this about book publishing, but you never write your book, especially if it's nonfiction uh, or essays or something that's not, you know, created just creative work you never write that and then send it off so what you do is you you have to write a proposal and then if you want to get um a major publisher and the, so there's in the, in the united states you got the big five and that's like i don't want to name them but <laughs> they're the corporate behemoths of publishing and they dominate 80 percent of the market and they're seen as prestigious and kind of a credential for writers um, if you want to do that, then you need an agent. So you need this intermediary who's going to sell, who has relationships established with the editors at those publishing houses, and they go out and they pitch it. 
So I worked with an agent that I knew through my writing community in San Francisco. Uh, he believed in the project, which I thought was kind of amazing to begin with. Um, I think because, you know, we have reached a tipping point where a lot of folks, I mean, perhaps because of the popularity of the paleo movement, um, perhaps because of the COVID lockdowns, I don't know, but it was appealing to to some of the editors. Um, and the first contract I got was in um, the fall of 2019 with one of the big five. And uh, so I was really psyched. I was pumped and nice advance and hey, I can actually afford to sit down and write this thing. And I wrote it. Uh, and in the meantime, this happens frequently. The acquiring editor, the person who said, yes, we're going to vouch for Jessica's book and we're going to push it through and we're going to give it all the marketing support that we can. She left and they replaced her with somebody who absolutely hated my book <laughs> and was kind of determined to do whatever she could to push it off of their uh, off of their catalog. And so an excruciating two years later, she finally was like, nope, we're not going to publish you after I had put in so much work. And um, so that was that was like a necessary ego dissolution for me, you know, where I was like, hmm, this book is the only book I ever wanted to write. It's like the only thing I want to do in my life right now. Am I going to give up? Am I going to self-publish? Which is was also fine and like fantastic. And so many authors do well with that. Um, but I still held on to this idea that like, nope, I want to kind of take this easier route and uh, address more people if possible. So waited six months, repitched it. Uh, thank goodness Sourcebooks took it. And they actually, you know, the editor was affirmative. She liked my ideas uh, to an extent. You know, there's a there's some aspects of rewilding, you know, like the stuff that's illegal or that's sort of like on that borderline between like, okay, so I have a, this humanure composting situation at my house. Like nobody's going to find out about it. And I'm really careful about it. But it's like, don't talk about that. Uh, or it's, you know even though there were abundant acorns at a park that I went to with my daughters and we collected a bucket full, they were like, Nope, don't say you collected a bucket. That's a bad example. You say you took two or three. Um, so there was like a minimizing of, of the radicalism that happened in the text mm -hmm. and some terms were changed. Um, you know, and I don't have strong opinions. Okay. Some people say homeless, some people say unhoused, but this publisher really had like a, <laughs> a line that they wanted to take and people they wanted to appeal to and make sure that I didn't get in trouble. Um, so, so there's a, a lot more of that kind of scaffolding and liabilities and, uh, oh, you can't say this that happens in the mainstream publishing. And furthermore, and I swear to God, I'm going to stop talking soon. Furthermore, there's market testing, which I was unprepared for. I thought, oh, it's my book. I'll get to decide the title. I'll get to have some control over the cover. And it's like, nope. They, um, they, they literally have these like focus groups that they send potential titles to and the focus group chooses what they like, you know, the book title to be. <laughs> so when I said I didn't have anything to do with that one, I really had nothing to do with it. Uh, it was a group of some random consumers in Chicago, mm. which is kind of funny to me, but I, I mean, you know, I trust them. They're, they're going to sell it. Uh, and even if they don't sell it, like it's still going to be a book out there and, uh, and I'm, you know, it's not about the money at all. I really, you know, I'm giving away tons of free copies, want it to be available to, to people who need this message and this inspiration. Um, so, so yeah, it's a mixed bag for me, but I'm, but I'm, you know, hopeful that this will have some impact. Very cool. And I'm curious for you is your, what is your audience? Is your audience the, the 
the quote unquote uninitiated, the unradical that's already into the Paleolithic diet or aspects of maybe history? Is it someone who knows absolutely nothing? Is it the mother who is struggling because she's like, oh, I want to, you know what I mean? The coworkers you had, is it those people you're writing to? Who are you writing to? Yes. Who is the audience? So it's really at the most general sense, it is anyone who has ever questioned an aspect of civilization and their life and thought, God, there's got to be a better way. Uh, because that was me for my whole life until I encountered all these ideas and kind of <laughs> found answers and, and the realization that, no, this isn't the only way that life has to be in the suburbs, you know, buying all your food from the grocery store, going to work, having a boss, feeling completely limited and domesticated. Uh, it's for anybody who's questioned their domestication. So more specifically, uh, I think the the book, because it's a female author and I'm writing about uh, women and mother topics, like that's a big segment that uh, I think will be interested. So how do you navigate immersing your children in nature while the entire culture just wants to give them candy and screens? That's a big segment. Um, yeah, like you said, the people who have been sort of initiated into thinking about the paleo diet and why that might be advantageous for us. Uh, it's not really the tech folks. I consider them a lost cause. But if there mm -hmm. are some who are like, wait a second, what really is the impact of these, you know, uh, electric cars and solar panels? Is this actually going to, you know, create a better life for us? Sure, there must be questioners in that segment. Um, and I'd love for them to find the book, too. And then I also wanted to celebrate the communities that I spent time in. So the book is sort of like a, an homage to them. And, you know, a lot of the folks that you and I know in common who have been living you know, their boldest, bravest, badass lives for decades and, you know, trying to celebrate them and give them more attention. Very cool. Yeah, I like that a lot. It's obviously touching on, it's touching the different people in different ways because what's your interest, you know? So I, I appreciate that yeah. a lot. Um, something I'm, you know, I want to kind of go back. I find it interesting that more and more people are coming to anarcho-primitivism or rewilding this way is... I came into it through anarchism, right? Mm -hmm. I became an anarchist in community college when when I found Kropotkin. And then from there, it was, I always kind of had like a techno-skepticism. And I was like, oh, I wouldn't be, being Tarzan would be cool, right? Like when I was younger. Yeah. Um, but then I read it and I was like, you know, this all kind of came together for me. You know, I read Kaczynski, you know, in Just Deciding's Future. I read Zerzan. I read Kevin Tucker too. I read Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. All the, you know, all the big names. Um, but it's interesting. I came through it through radicalism, but a mm -hmm. lot of more people are coming for the, the way I say it, I came to primitivism through anarchism, but mm -hmm. a lot more people are coming to anarchism through primitivism. There you That's go. Great. And I find that, yeah. I find that really interesting. It and is. So, and yeah, for me, totally. for me, it's like, is there a cultural difference or we don't have a difference in emphasis? Right. Like, are you coming to primitivism because of the health aspects? And yeah, surely anarcho primitivists generally are, but anarchists, the anarchist primitivists very much see it also in this more holistic sense. Mm -hmm. uh, but are, is, like, is it a different emphasis? Does it matter? Or, I mean, or does it really just come down to the individual? You know what I mean? There's so many interesting questions that come with that. I know. I, well, can we just ground it all in nature? I mean, right. Is it? <laughs> Right. So like whatever path you you follow, like if you can just understand that that it's about our separation. Um, 
that I, I think there's so much common ground. I mean, what I'm sort of missing, yeah, is that intellectual history of anarchism. I would say my background was more, you know, joined the Marxist reading group at Swarthmore College, you know, and met every Tuesday night to read these obscure uh, theorists and critical theorists and, you know, who were making a wonderful critique of technology and civilization. Um, this was in the 90s, so postmodernism was all the rage, which now I'm sort of like, oh God, why did I spend four years studying that? Um, but but yeah, and, and anarchism was sort of, to me, was like on the fringe, you know, not necessarily viable because I was still within that Marxist-based superstructure thinking like, oh, we have these classes, there's nothing you can do about the class differences. Um, but mm -hmm. then with anarchism, just, and, and, grounding it in hunter-gatherer anthropology and studies of current current day groups like seeing the the true leaderless acephalous uh social organization and that being you know is such a great way to live <laughs> that it's like okay. I, i've dissolved this the, my understanding that hierarchy is natural right there's only a few natural hierarchies which have to do with uh, predator prey and a uh, seniority in groups so anything else mm -hmm. now i'm like nope i don't want to participate in that hierarchy but yeah, I am missing the the intellectual history of the all of the hyphenated anarchisms, you know, so syndicalism and uh, all the kind of political brands. Because I just I, at this point, I don't have any faith in any type of politics that isn't hyper local. Right, and I find that yeah. interesting too because we're talking about the benefits, right? And you know how healthy they are. That that's all that. And what's so funny, as soon as you talk about that, even the radicals are like, "Well, uh, do you want to die because you stub your toe? They don't have modern medicine." And it's like, what's so funny is it's like, sure, like you have problems that will exist. They're not those problems you think they are. But what's funny is they will create this wonderful techno utopia and they're like, oh, there will be no more war. Racism will suddenly go away for some reason. Sexism will suddenly go away for some reason. But then uh -huh. when you question them, they're like, well, we can't know, but it's pretty possible. But then we rely on actual anthropology. And sure, we're going to politicize the anthropology because that's what it is. To me, anarcho-primitivism is politicized anthropology or applied anthropology. Correct. Very but good. it's funny is yeah. they you you can't criticize a leftist blueprint, but they can criticize the shit out of us for some reason, it, whatever that reasoning is. The cognitive dissonance is at play, I suppose. I was just thinking that um, those there's such a fear based mentality, right? So if you think about right. um, the psychological and social differences between whatever our idealized hunter gatherer group, or let's take let's take this on uh, in the Kalahari Desert or the Hadza. Like, there's so much more trust, personal trust. Uh, there's there's so much more responsibility to one another to support and to ensure the survival of the group. That the and the, and then the fears are so concrete and culturally materialist. Like, okay, food is there enough food? Okay, predator in the area. How are we going to protect ourselves? Um, right. So when you get down to those basics, psychologically, the the fear is so contained and their stress levels are so low. Right. Because when anything disruptive happens, it's it's more instant. It's not that chronic stress that we suffer through the traffic and right. the dead and the, the whining kids and the whatever. Uh, and stuff that's even worse than that cancer. Um, right. Like d traffic accidents. Um, so so there's an entirely different psychological condition when a techno utopia says. OK, so we're all going to go live in the world. We don't have medicine. Well, that's based on your fear that you have as a construct being a domesticated member of civilization that you're so afraid right. of being without medicine. I'm not afraid of that. Like, like 
because I accept death. I accept the cycle of life, the predator prey, I will die. And, you know, when you come to terms with that, then all this, oh, I won't have an insurance policy and I won't have a retirement. And no, because I trust, I trust in self to get what I need. And I trust in my community that I'm building and my children who I'm educating with wilderness skills. Like, so it's, it's almost like you can't even talk to them because they're so fear driven, right? That we're not speaking, this, right. we're not speaking from the same value system at all. And I, I really feel like it right. does. There's so much from indigenous wisdom to learn about that, uh, you know, trust in nature and you are part of it all and you don't need to fear and whatever happens, like you'll, you'll either die or you will, you'll make what's so bad about dying. Um, right. We all have our time. So I don't be flipping about like serious moral concerns at all, but I just think that one of the best aspects of my rewilding journey has been this loss of fear, anxiety. Right. Well, you know, and it's, it's funny because people say, oh, well, and then we'll move on. I promise. But I love shitting on other people. It's my favorite pastime. Yeah. <laughs> um, for me, it's, you know, people, people like, oh, it's ableist. It's transphobic. It's someone would say, my favorite thing is, well, it's racist. Cause you're making a, a caricature. It's like, I don't know what that means. Cause everyone at some point has been a hunter gatherer, regardless of where you lived in the world, but that's neither here nor there, but it's, What's funny is uh, they're like, well, it's ableist or or transphobic or whatever. And I don't like playing the identity game because I don't like, yeah, there's times to talk about that. Absolutely. But like mm-hmm. to use it as a trump card, I'm not trying to weaponize my identity against someone because that's not useful. Um, but for example, like I am disabled. I have brittle bone disease and I consider myself like trans or non-binary. I don't get too into the labels. That's not my interest, but generally like mm-hmm. queer, right? Yeah, And my favorite thing is, well, their immediate thing is, well, disabled people can be ableist. It's like, okay, so what you're saying is my opinion doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that I'm disabled. It's that my opinion does not align with yours. And therefore I'm, I'm ableist or I'm transphobic. Yeah. You know, that's, that's the beautiful thing. Right. They stick a label on you because what they do instead of engaging with it. Well, if you're, if you're ableist then anyone that associates with you is bad and I don't have to argue with you because you're bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. You know, I mean, there's just so many arguments and, and once again, these aren't just, just ideas pie in the sky. Like, Oh, we could build a society like this. It's like, no, look at how societies were Uh, lots of respect for injured and sick members of various tribes. And, And certainly you have some who are left behind, but once again, there's the, there's more of an acceptance of uh of of death and like ableism itself to me seems like that attack is based is a fear-based attack right so like what, what mm-hmm. is it about you that's scared and um threatened by by the idea of, of hunter-gatherer life um and, and and are you informed enough to know what those societies did for folks who didn't have uh you know everything wasn't i don't even know how to talk about this sorry <laughs> folks who weren't uh, no, you're... able but you know there, there's this whole uh this anthropological data from what's it called it's called the broken femur have you heard of this yes theory yeah so i don't know how many thousands of years ago it was but uh archaeological find that that in a person who had had their femur broken at a young age which is such a catastrophic injury for somebody without nor you know, modern medicine and uh, and this person was nursed and taken around and uh, totally supported until they died of old age. 
which is evidence for for that kind of care that people think that um, primitivists don't advocate for. So I just I just don't think these arguments hold weight when you go and look at how how the societies actually operate. Yeah, I mean, think about um, now I'm blanking on it. Shannon, the longest living Neanderthals were all disabled and injured. And the longest living Neanderthals. Uh, is it Shenadar 1 in Shenadar Cave? I want to say it's Shenadar 1. He was missing the eye. He was probably deaf in both ears. His uh, his hemorrhage was, like, basically gone. Like, this dude, and he had no teeth, meaning someone, either he did it or someone had to prepare food for him. And right. they had to move to account for his speed. And these are nomadic people who are now moving slower but accommodating and here's the thing fundamentally it's like well i don't want to live that way it's like okay so let's break this down uh there are mines there you are not getting around the fact that people have to be in mines to get what you want so you believe that the war the what is essentially the the global south should be enslaved for your comfort yeah that's what you are that is what you were saying and there's yeah. i'm sorry the proletarian revolution isn't stopping people having to go in the mines the people's mind is not solving that it's exploitation, right? Um, so I just, I, I don't buy that. And yeah, like primitivism's not a utopia, but utopia won't exist. And I'm very tired of these chronically online people making up a, a fantasy land that every, everything's going to be perfect. There will be no conflict. Everyone's going to mm -hmm. be treated entirely fairly all the time. There won't be, you know, any interpersonal conflict. Sorry, that doesn't happen. The, the basis well, wait, is uh, how do we yeah. respond to those things? How do we respond to those things? And what is the scale? That's what matters. It's not that we can get rid of it, but how can we manage it? That's the question. I love it. I love it. Well, I don't know. Maybe that's a crazy too? idea. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, when Q comes, everything's going to be all right. I don't know. That's a... So So another argument, though, is to, is to turn the tables on like okay so what what kind of care and concern is evidenced by a society that puts most of its old folks in homes right with complete right. strangers on life support it you know right. like what kind of life is that uh and you're not willing to take care of elders uh but these societies are so i i, I think all of those negative arguments could be flipped back at us um exactly and, and, exactly. and I think it's, it's unconscious for so many people the, 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 this traumatized civilized life has been normalized. Um, so, so it's more like a teaching moment of like, okay, really you think life is so great, great the way we have it now? Why do you think that? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> or how we could have it right. in the right. You keep saying, yeah. Right. Yeah. So kind of going on the continuation of like radicalism and, and clarity uh, in the beginning of your book, and some people are not going to see why I care about this, but you have a notes on terms and a really solid introduction. I think it, it's really nice because it helps people understand this is what the book's about. Even if you don't know anything about rewilding or anarchism or primitivism, here's what I'm talking about. But you're also not doing this like, oh, I'm just appropriating like hunter-gatherer life or indigenous aesthetics for my own aim. You're, cent you're, center you're centering it in it. Um, mm. And so I appreciate that a lot. Like it is based in hunter-gatherer life. You're not using hunter-gatherer life to sell a product. You're not doing it to sell a diet. Because some, I understand the paleo diet, but I also understand there are people that sell the paleo diet in a very exploitive way. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So yeah, I just, I thought I, I liked it a lot. And so I was curious, what was your thought process 
writing those sections. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, my thought process was that there were so many books coming out that, like you said, did sort of draw upon uh, hunter-gatherer anthropology and ethnic studies and uh, current day studies of these communities where, right, it's being put to some purpose. So for instance, there was, um, what's his name? Brett and Heather. Oh, they wrote the Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, which came out about a year and a half ago. And the whole idea there is um, is using that that data of how these, these communities uh, evolved and how they survived for 300,000 years, but then what are the insights we can take into our high-tech life from them? Um, and, and absolutely no reflection upon exactly what you're saying. Like, this is all contingent upon mines and exploitation in the global south. Um, so mm -hmm. I, I was just seeing like a flawed interpretation of hunter-gatherer and paleo life uh, where it's like, okay, we can keep everything the same. We'll just Why? do the, the bright green stuff and we'll incorporate all this great bioanthropology to be living these healthy lives in industrial society. Um, and I heard very few people except from the anarcho-primitivists uh, that no, <laughs> that's impossible. You can't do that. And that is doing a disservice to these communities. It's it's uh, kind of a sacrilege to our birthright as hunter-gatherers to, to, to think that we can keep existing in the way that we are uh, with all this comfort and convenience. It's anathema to that lifestyle. Um, yeah, so I wanted to really ground it in that and, and make it very thing that this is, is a person's book. I, this is from my own personal epiphany. It's not, it's not just an academic conjecture. It's not just a study. This is like, oh, yeah, when I approximate hunter-gatherer life myself, when I'm spending all my time outside, when I'm finding my food, I am thriving. And I know that from, my, you know, from so many years not thriving. So there's right. the personal, there's the, the anthropological, and then there's the statement of like, everybody's getting it wrong. We can't just incorporate this into techno utopia. That's never going to work. Right. Yeah. I and, just and never then, quite understood. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go on. Oh, I just want to say there's so much caveman bullshit too. You know, like <laughs> the, the folks, the uninitiated into the G life, like, right. Like they're brutish. They're nasty. They're short. The, the, the lifestyle is, uh, somehow completely backward and um, regressive from where we have come as democratic, enlightened uh, global capitalists. And so I want to also flip that around and say, nope, it's exactly the opposite. They know what they're doing. Right. <laughs> and That's the funny thing about. is we live in a society in which one president can apparently derail the, the entire destiny of our nation as people like to express the so-called enlightened democratic capitalists. It's like, but this, is oh, that a good good point? Mm. Like wow, or we talk about wow, like we like we're so desensitized to imperialism and war that we almost kind of just mention it. But it's like they don't do that. Yeah, they have conflict, but they don't wipe each other out or yeah. attempt to control each other. But we're they, we're the ones that know the right way. But how about this? The fact is they are continually under pressure to integrate into into so called modern society, but they refuse to. It's not because they're unintelligent. It's because they know who they are and what they're yeah. what what they are and are not willing to do. Yes, the last holdout. Yeah, and and not to put right. too much anthropo or anthropocentrism either. Like the modern industrialized domesticated human is unlike every other creature on earth, right? So it's not just mm -hmm. hunter gatherers. 
And that's why I, I try to bring in a lot of natural history in the book and talk about like the life of Fox and the, the life of those bees and the hive, um, because we're, we're going against the rules of all of the cultures uh, of the non-human world. And so, yeah. so much evidence against, <laughs> against this particular lifestyle. Yeah. And I mean, that pulls back to Daniel Quinn's idea of taker and lever that, you know, you exactly. may, yeah. you may compete, but you may not wage war. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's all, it all comes back to the fact that what's been said, even by non-primitivists, I mean, goes back to, to Salins and the, the man, the hunter symposium. And it, it's just so crazy that like, you know, it's even funny, like, you know, Americans and oddly even Europeans love to romanticize the indigenous indigenous americans people indigenous to the western hemisphere but then yes. like can't seem to like connect why like like we even had american authors talking about like oh you know we can't we can't keep indigenous people in our cities but white people wow they just fucking love to live with the indigenous people i wonder what it is yeah <laughs> like oh right. huh, weird <laughs> i wonder what the, the relationship could be i don't know maybe maybe just because these white people these settlers are just dumb or something i don't know <laughs> no you no know. true investigation into into the allure and the appeal of the freedom right, right yeah right yeah so in many of your chapters obviously this is about you you're following your life device development rewilding taking control self-autonomy self-direction uh, but it also connects to like almost contrasting like oh this reminds me of or i learned about like this indigenous culture or this indigenous life way and you've been kind of touching on this earlier, but what is the importance of knowing and engaging with those cultures or individuals in your own development in the in like your future as a rewilder? Mm, great, great question. It's so fraught, right? And it's such it's such difficult and also beautiful, and so much mutual understanding can come about through that. But um, where to start? I mean, I just I guess when I was taking when I was training to become a naturalist that's this like uc course you know certified california natural and uh 10-week course and um <laughs> the textbook would sort of mention traditional ecological you know like just a little sort of um, token token mention of the you know this vast body of what we could consider science um if, if we want to observation that's been for thousands of years by just books and it's just like a tiny little paragraph in the course book that pissed me off and and when i would go on field trips and ask um, people presenting you know all sorts of native plants like, how did people use this and and it would speak only in the sand, right so like oh california buckeye they throw it in a stream and it was on the fish and then they would pull the fish out and then just you know this idea that uh, all these are dead all the native california are gone that life over and we've got this new and improved scientific way of looking at nature and so uh, actively seeking out members of those communities spending time with them um eating with them learning about their wild foods making crafts you know kind of sharing what i was learning from the naturalist course um and then going to primitive skills gatherings and many of those have made a concerted effort to include uh local indigenous folks and artisans so that you know it's it's still not a seamless, harmonious integration with what I would say is the mostly white, hetero, European origin um, crowd that goes to those gatherings. But there's, it, it feels real. It feels like a real exchange where I was able to hear things like, you know, interviewing this, um, 
a woman named Tracy who lives in Squamish territory in uh, British Columbia. She shared her, her sacred tradition of being um, cats and, you know, talking with her as we learn from her. And, you know, I asked her, where are you from? And she's like, well, some people would say I'm from Vancouver, but Vancouver lives. And uh, just just hearing the the way they've many of these folks have um, kind of processed the, the the catastrophe that happened 500 years ago uh, and up to 150 years ago, and then you know giving it back to us in this honest and real way, and then sharing their traditions, teaching it to us, and then learning that there is an expectation that I do not commodify or make money off of what has been shared with me. Uh, I heard that over and over mm. again, that like it was a way to learn and enrich myself with the knowledge of, you know, how to weave a Oaxacan rug or how to make a pomo Native American basket or like this, the cedar hats. But um, if I were to then try to profit from that, that's where we draw the line. So there, so I was getting, you know, kind of ethics, instructed in ethics and what to do. And I fundamentally decided, um, okay, everyone everyone on earth has this birthright of learning the four basics, the fire, the shelter, the food, and the water. Um, you can't take that away from me. That can't be called cultural But when we get into artistry and we get into religion, and ritual and spiritual stuff and fashion and regalia, all of that, which, you know, on Maslow's hierarchy, we ascribe to the, that's more in the realm the the higher tiers and the self-actualization and the social culture building that stuff i only do if i'm invited directly right and i think that's a great rule to observe everybody should do what they need to do but um that's how i've kind of made peace with my position in this difficult situation of you know lamenting that i live on land that uh isn't mine you know, and that's contested too, because all sorts of uh, native groups fought over territories. It was really hard to say, like, which particular plots belong to who, right? And there's an entirely different understanding of land ownership. But the truth is, is there was a genocide and an ecocide, and I'm benefiting from it today. And so how do I interact with these folks? And, um, and, and I think it's also about that shift from, you know, there's a lot of fear in liberal environmental circles about climate change, about possible social collapse. And what I kept hearing from indigenous folks was like, well, collapse happened to us. Uh, you know, we had massive climate change and we were put on the worst possible land. And, um, you know, we're still here. We're thriving. We're here. So what are you all worried about? It's about adaptation and resilience. Um, and not that anyone would wish that kind of ca catastrophe on anyone. But to, but to have that perspective of like collapse already happened for us, that was really powerful for me. Yeah, I mean... As Malatha said, I'm going to refer to him because you're touching a lot of similar things. He said, you know, what my people went through was an apocalypse in the highest mm -hmm. regard. He was, mm -hmm. he is of Choctaw and Nachi descendants. And he, uh, he, you know, traces lineage and all that and back to the Mississippi culture, a, a culture of civilization. And, you know, we, him and I get into like, oh, was that really sustainable? But, you know, like this idea of like, those cities becoming depopulated, yeah, before contact, but even like the villages. And that's where you get this idea of like, oh, you know, America was unpopulated and untouched. I was like, because here's the impact of colonialism. They didn't even need to see the Europeans before they died, before they felt mm -hmm. the impact of Europeans, mm. right? 
And mm-hmm. what you talked about, you said that I don't live in Vancouver. You know, Vancouver lives on my land. Uh, that reminds me of the Malcolm X quote. We didn't land on Plymouth Rock. The rock landed on us. There you go. Yes, I right? love that. It's such a twist on that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and it's so funny because I know primitivists personally, they're like, well, it has nothing to do with colonialism. Everyone's a part of it now. And it's like, yeah, like because of the liberal assimilationism, but like at its core, where did it come from? And who is the main proponent? Like, I'm sorry. Like, yeah, we can talk. Yeah, sure. More and more people of different backgrounds are integrated, but that doesn't mean colonialism is irrelevant or that like indigenous struggles aren't relevant. I just, I think, again, it's that homesteader mentality. Like, oh, I just want to go and do what I want on some on, on land and not have to care about what that impact might mean or what I'm carrying, the privilege that might have allowed me to do so, but not mm-hmm. other people, you know, it's just, yeah. that's, that's crazy to me that we can't talk about it. And sure, there's nothing like I'm not interested in white guilt. White guilt's a bunch of liberal bullshit. But there's something to be said about being able to be open to conversation and dialogue about where you are in society in relation to someone else. Absolutely. Oh, thank you for that. Yeah, so much resonance. I mean, what's interesting is some of, you know, some of my understandings were challenged uh, by folks I spent time with. And I'm not coming down on one side or the other. So I spent a lot of time with Jamie Van Lannan. And uh, he's you know, hardcore primitivist, but he mm-hmm. also, he's an anthropologist. Do you know him? Jamie? Yeah. Yeah, Jamie. So he's featured in the book across a bunch of chapters uh, because he really has like deep wisdom, um, spent a lot of time in uh, hunter-gatherer communities and doing his own ethnographic work um, with indigenous folks in Alaska and in a position he had. So what what he found to be really difficult was um, this line between wanting these communities who have really only modernized in the last 50 to 80 years, wanting them, you know, with, with the guidance of elders who are advocating for this, to retain traditional hunting practices. Uh, and, you know, in Alaska, it's a, it's a whole different world of, of subsistence foraging and hunting, and people have a lot more rights, and certainly the indigenous have much more opportunity, you know, land access and hunting uh, opportunities there. So what he found was like, okay, the young people wanted to use motorized vehicles. They wanted to have, um, they wanted to have every technological advantage in order to bring the meat back home to their families. And then what that does is it uh, creates more dependence for their villages on, you know, getting jobs or getting more subsidies from the government or whatever it is uh, to support that extra expense of the technology. Whereas, you know, 50, 80, 100 years ago, they weren't accustomed to using that kind of technology uh, when they're foraging. And And then, you know, so this is really hard. It's like, well, okay, we're going to deny these advantages to indigenous communities who just are trying to subsist and get meat. Uh, But yet you see that that double edged sword of like, okay, now they're dependent. Now they're not self-sufficient. They can't um, not interact with the global economy anymore because they don't know how to do it the old way. So he was really an advocate of like, gotta preserve these old ways no matter what. I don't care if it's paternalistic. I don't care if it sounds like um, I'm going against the grain because if we're not taking a stand and bringing these life ways, they're going to disappear forever. So I found that really compelling and also really problematic. And uh, I just don't know. I, I know that for myself, I would prefer to, to keep dis- diminishing my reliance on technology. Um, and I'm not here to legislate what other communities do. He was 
actually in it. You could impact legislation that would allow certain hunting days before the main season opened where people could use traditional methods, right? Um, and I don't want to be in a position of legislating. That's not my personality, but I just know. Right. <laughs> but providing an example of living a better life um, and, and trying to integrate more old ways even though I am a domesticated, civilized person. That's inspiring to me. That's the thing I'm going to keep fighting for and waking up every day trying to do. Jamie, Jamie's awesome. We're actually having him on the podcast. This We're recording this Sunday, actually. Uh, he's oh. awesome. Yeah, and he's coming back from spending time in Africa, right? Like, with Yeah, he, he's been back, I think, two weeks now. He was with the Hadza, and he told him the John's Anarchy Radio a couple days ago, which another self-plug. John Zerzan's interview we just did will go up. We're recording on Friday the 14th. It will go up on the 15th tomorrow on a Saturday. Uh, Fantastic. Well, for real, I'm, yeah, it's great. Oh, I love I love meeting people who also know other people. It's so great. I love it. Yeah, I know. This is a small world, <laughs> Artemis. Unfortunate, unfor- that's the unfortunate part, right? Is that it, I, wish, I wish it wasn't so small sometimes. <laughs> but then, you know, it's cool we got our own clan and i just wish you know it was my goal for a little while to like let's all come together let's do something let's let's be out in the woods together that's still a dream of mine too let's get all the the amprams together um somewhere so yeah good i'm glad you're talking to jamie he is yeah like you said so inspiring and so hardcore Mm -hmm. i mean He's oh, unaffected by a lot of liberal uh, propagandistic attacks. He just he doesn't abide by them. Right, because he knows what the reality is. He's lived it. It's one thing for maybe someone like me to be like, yeah, theoretically, but then it's someone to be like, theoretically and practically, that's all bullshit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, yeah. So going kind of, we're uh, continuing with the theme of the, the conflicting identities and privilege and all that comes with that in this book and in other spaces, you've mentioned like the masculine or like the machismo or the frontiersmen bend in rewilding in an integral primitivism. What is your perspective? What is your perspective rather on what causes that and how, what is your aim or what do you think people should do to overturn the, the gendered culture, I guess, of rewilding? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm gonna have a cliche pat answer for you with which is patriarchy. Um yeah, it's and then you know the solution really is is for more people to familiarize themselves with what it is like to live in an egalitarian hunter-gatherer band. So you know, this idea of egalitarian is is that you can have separate roles for genders. Um, there can be proclivities and those are celebrated and they're also ega- the egal in egalitarian is equally valued, right? Whatever the one group brings to the table, the other group brings something else to the table. That is all part of the subsistence. So whether you're bringing in uh, 60 pounds of foraged roots or bringing that eland that was shot with the poison dart arrow, both of those are needed for the group's survival. Um, and so one isn't valorized. Over another, and there's this really interesting thing in, that happens in hunter-gatherer communities called reverse dominance, um, where somebody who achieves something that might be seen to give them some sort of power or edge over others deliberately holds back from gaining um, any kind of prestige or power. Right. So if in, in, I know this is true of some of the Hadza communities and um, 
you know, many, many hunter-gatherer communities. But if, if a man makes a kill, like a heroic, glorious kill, brings back a large animal to feed everybody, people will make fun of him. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right? It, it, there is no way he is getting the ticker tape parade. Um, because they know that if somebody doesn't hold that humility, that like, okay, it was by chance, it was by skill, but it doesn't matter because we're all equal, we're all sharing. Um, you, you know, and then he will be given an honor portioning out the first parts the most um you know the delicacy parts of the animal but there but there's no sense of and also in these bands there are no celebrated leaders chieftains kings um so once once that develops in society right and the advent of patriarchy that's that's just sort of been naturalized that like oh the men are on this heroic quest we need to celebrate them for their accomplishments but actually in human evolution if we did that dangerous because then that man has too much power to manage the group fails so um so it really is a product of our dependence on agriculture and on industrialization that we can afford to heroize men so that they get big egos get a lot of power and yeah so i I think the cure is just lots more information about uh how we evolved in social groups and what that the role of women was not subjugation it wasn't less than um and it also wasn't more than I know a lot of people are trying to matriarchal cultures these days and show like, oh, women used to be in charge and, you know, men were their slaves. Um, and certainly there have been pockets in history where that occurred, but I don't see that as a sustainable, nor nor has it proven out um, in terms of longevity in human history. So so what we really need is that yin-yang. Um, and once I personally realized, because I, I definitely have felt subjugated as a as a woman and certainly as a mother where my entire life I had been been groomed to have, you know, kind of a credentialed career where I'm achieving things, right. I'm I'm on my own heroine quest, right. As we all do in our culture, if we're in a certain class and uh, parents, parental expectations. And then I found motherhood, this biological event just took me tumbling down. Um, And I was, you know, there was no valorization of my role. It was sort of like, well, when are you getting back to work? why aren't you writing? And, oh, you're just spending time right. with a child. And, and uh, having to reconstruct the value of, of raising a child as the most important thing I could be doing and, and not in a cliched kind of right-wing, wow, i got to be on the farm and i got to be taking care of Right. This, this essentialized, an essentialized like motherhood or something like that. Yeah, no, no. But just this idea that, hey, I, this is really important work. And all of you criticizing me, you have mothers. <laughs> How do you think you got to where you? Uh, and so there's there's scenes in my books where I sort of contrast what I do see to be the heroism of mothers with uh, the sort of inflated egoistic macho wilderness man stuff. Um, right. Yeah. There was there was a moment when th- there's this thing called the Spartan race, which is a stoic competition where people you know challenge themselves and go out and all these obstacles and go through the mud and emerge completely exhausted uh and then they're given a medal the guy who founded that joe DeSena, worked individually with different people he would coach you know whether it's for weight loss or improved fitness he was working with this heavily obese man um and he made a promise to him like well for every pound you lose i will carry around a kettlebell of that weight you know to motivate you and to also help with my fitness. And so Joe DeSena ended up 
carrying around this 44 pound dumbbell. Got a lot of press for it. Went on TV talk shows, you know, like everybody's celebrating him. Wow, look at him, he's carrying that kettlebell. And just at that moment, I realized, hey, my um, separation anxiety prone three-year-old, he's also 44 pounds. I'm carrying her around every single Where's the paparazzi? You know, I was just like, oh my God. Um, and over and over again, finding that the strength of women and mothers and the, the particular biological advantages that we have as humans on the earth um, are diminished. And, and in, in their place, you know, we see the hero male. Um, right. Yeah. So that's damaging. It's damaging to every, it's damaging and it's equally, it's damaging to women and children. So what can be done about that? Well, I tried to write a book, trying to stir up interest, trying to get more non-macho men into, or sorry, non-macho people, just everybody else interested in this movement because of the empowering aspects of it, because of the self-reliance uh, and the freedom and the badassery. So mm -hmm. that's, that's what we could do is just make it, make it appealing. Right. Yeah. I, I really like that. And so when you're talking about the reverse dominance, this is really interesting. So Richard Lee, who was very important alongside Marshall Solins to overturning this, the Hobbesian idea of short, nasty, brutish. Um, mm -hmm. He was with a hunter gatherer group and he sees this, like they shame him when they bring back good meat, good meat, or yeah. if they fail, they'll help him hunt, but they'll tease him during it. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, why did they do that? And he asked an elder and the elder said, quote, when a young man kills much meat, he thinks of himself as a big man and he thinks of the rest of us as his inferiors. We cannot accept this. We refuse one who boasts for someday his pride will make him kill somebody. We always speak of his meat as worthless. In this way, we cool his heart and make him gentle. Mm -hmm. that is a, that's probably exactly what I was reading. Yep. Yeah. The importance of that. And of course, and, and we're not you know, our species or particularly hunter-gatherers are not passively. They're not doing it because incidentally it works. They are actively, or as in the words of, uh, uh, of, of Lee, again, fiercely egalitarian, right? Mm -hmm. It is a check on society. And of course, this goes back to, we were talking about Jamie earlier and what the radical anthropology group puts out that very likely that's the cause of women sexually selecting for sociable 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 or empathetic men who are willing yeah. to share the food who aren't going to be like the ch our chimp cousins right who are aggressive alpha male dominated this idea that that's who we are it's like no fundamentally that's not who we are and that's mm -hmm. the point mm -hmm. now i think deep down we have that and this is me when it gets into the human nature conversation we aren't necessarily good we aren't necessarily bad we have the capacity to do good in the capacity to do bad we have the capacity to be egalitarian we have the capacity to be authoritarian or the mm -hmm. alpha male and now the way i think of it is the alpha male has returned particularly in history it's mm -hmm. been dealt a literal male but more and more as liberal society develops it's as you said macho anyone alpha anyone the boss who thinks they're entitled to something right and that's yeah. kind of come back and that to me that's ironically we think oh civilization will keep that from happening it's like no civilization is that yes oh it's only made possible through that big man theory right when we right yeah when the the, the yeah little jamie will talk about that <laughs> he's mm -hmm. he's all down with the yeah. late return big man being the cause of everything right and you know and then there's um cultural materialism, the idea of that from Marvin Harris. And he talks about 
that like the the big man theory like how important it is for the big man to spawn civilization that or the shaman or again anyone who believes they have something over another mm -hmm. whether that's by access to spiritual needs or physical needs right whatever that is you know oh this is so, so good no no and i love how you're bringing in the right and so us being kind of situated between the the second Craze loving oxytocin bonobos and the uh <laughs> and these are all cliches and stereotypes of the the chimps who can be can be murderous and not not building coalitions um and uh murdering the babies all that yeah no we're and we do have the capacity to go either way but not for the majority of human history right the the, uh, the rise of the alpha male um that is so recent and when we look at the, mm -hmm. the grand scheme of it, it's a track record of over 300,000 years of egalitarian societies. Um, yeah. Or if you want to take a more Zerzanic approach to, to say something kind of weird, is that like fundamentally, what's the difference between us and like some of our related other homo species? Because if you want to, you can make a pretty good argument. I was an anthropology major for a time myself, and I really like the idea like taxonomy, you know, in terms of taxonomy. There's really not a really good argument for all the differentiation of our human species, mm -hmm. to be honest, mm -hmm. especially in terms of like, when they're like, oh, in terms of behavior, you know, the, the tool making, that's what starts us. And it turns out they're actually millions of years older. The first tools oh, yeah. go actually way yeah. back, yeah. right? Or like fire or the, the, even if you want to get into the proportions, right? The human proportions, all right, then Homo erectus, the line between an archaic Homo sapien in a late Homo erectus, it's a very thin line. So it's like, arguably, it's not just 300,000 years and or even in some cases, 500,000 years, depending, but like millions of years of this shit working. And it's not, again, passive. I mean, this idea of this reverse dominance, this had to have been going on for a long time. They are actively choosing to live a certain lifestyle. And, you know, maybe some of it has to do with climate that allows agriculture, but you don't see a lot of evidence for sedentary hunter-gatherers earlier, right? And what Jamie, referring to him again, talks about like self-aggrandizing agents, these people mm -hmm. who had the realized, well, if I just manipulate some people or if I do this, it helps me. And maybe it's not as malicious. It's a slow building, right? That you don't see where this leads because you don't have hindsight to look back and say, well, that didn't fucking work, <laughs> right? Right, exactly. You know? You don't have your control group. But in fact, I mean, yeah. it's a long, it's, it's either a couple hundred thousand years, which is a long time, or literally millions of years of our species and in, 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 in our family, in the family tree, actively choosing a sustainable, egalitarian, anti-authoritarian lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And if that doesn't, uh, what I don't understand is, well, I mean, and we'll move on to the next question, I promise, but I'm loving yeah, this. No, so me too. What I, yeah, what, what, what's interesting is well, if you argue, well, you can't go back because that's ableist or you can't do this and that. I mean, isn't that funny that it's not all that dissimilar from like the arguments in favor of colonialism that we need to civilize the savage, mm -hmm. right? Like fundamentally, if you believe you're doing a service by keeping civilization around, shouldn't that extend to forcing people into your society? Well, like, well, no, I, I don't think so. It's like, but that's what civilization is because there is no choice. Yes, exactly. Right. And so there's, so yeah. it just doesn't make sense. and there's a cadre of liberal anthropologists who really don't, don't see the advantages of uh, remaining hunter gatherer groups where it's like, Nope, they all need education. They need to be modernized. And these are the folks who understand the damage, the damage that was done. And they're still like, well, it's wrong to deny them 
access to everything that the Western world has to offer. Offer what? Let's you know. Well, like, what is it? What does it offer? Like, well, well, art and cell phones and well, they need to be connected. It's like, well, good for them. They're already connected. Good thing they already have food. And the only reason they might they might be suffering from like from a lack of for for if they if they are suffering need, it is because of us in the conditions we've put them in, you know, with the Hadza being for, or even the, the, the sand people being forced into the margins of ecologies, yeah. right. Of environments that like these people are maintaining equitable life ways in an unequitable world, right. which is insane. Yeah. To me. That shows how resilient they are as a culture. Oh, and yeah, all props to the Sentinel Islanders, right. And the Warani, and oh my these people who are like, we said, like you keep talking about, there's this ferocity, this fierceness, uh, which us domesticated people have lost in a lot of contexts. But this idea that like our mm-hmm. life way is worth dying for, it's worth killing for, to protect it for mm-hmm. the good of the group, um, right? I mean, you cannot escape Sentinel Island if you show up there. They will hunt you down. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll be honest, man, all power to them. You want to bring Jesus Christ, uh, which is the spiritual disease. And if you want to bring like COVID to them, which is the physical disease, I don't give a shit. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I mean, I'm uncivilized. As we say, we're uncivilized and unapologetic. So maybe I'm not that sorry that you get what's coming to you. But maybe, you know, maybe that's just me being a misanthrope or something like that, right? I don't know. Who cares about the labels? I'm just, yeah, what's that instinct? How do you you really feel? (laughs) And you're so knowledgeable about all this. Like, I'm just loving it. Um, Yeah. No, and one other other key anthropological concept, just to to amplify, is not only is there that... um, that forced humility that happens, we, you know, the reverse dominance, mm-hmm. but there's demand sharing. So it's not like some government bureaucrats yeah. there saying, okay, here's your meal ration. Here's your meal ration. No. I mean, sometimes people have right. to get up and demand, Hey, I need my share of that animal. Um, and, and you got to give it to me. And, and then, okay, all right, you can have your share. I guess. Uh, so there's, there's all these conflicting forces. It's not Kumbaya. It's not the rainbow festival out there. Um, it, it, there, there is the, those tension dynamics, but with that tension, you keep the hierarchy from forming. It preserves the egalitarianism. So, yeah, super important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that a lot. I mean, again, we're not finding utopia, but maybe you know, may, in my opinion, maybe the closest thing to it, which is then again, it's not a lack of conflict; it's conflict resolution. And again, going back to fear, not being afraid of conflict. Yes. Not being mediated. Oh, I need to call the police or, mm-hmm. or you know, I need a mediator, which is, of course, mediation between two two parties and bringing in someone you both trust is different than calling in the fucking police or some other government agency, right? Or some fucking distant bureaucrat to fix it for yeah. you. It's about being not afraid, fundamentally. Yeah. Yes. That, okay, we got a theme to this one, guess. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah uh, yeah basically um one thing i wanted to touch on with that question earlier is um you know we're talking about men and women um and you made a point about saying hetero and, and things like that and i appreciate that because i think there's also this weird there's a growing well i shouldn't say growing because maybe it's always been there but like this very turfy like anti-trans queer thing going on to say like, well it's not natural it's like grow the fuck up mm, yeah right i just don't get it you know Derek jensen and his weird fucking cult you know i think deep down to me they're the 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 anti-civ or anti-tech version of like 
Westboro Baptist Church saying God hates fads, and then a bunch of them end up having like affairs with a man. <laughs> At some point, I have to suspect Dare Jensen might be in the trans woman. I just, I'm wow. sorry. I've got to assume that at some yeah. point. <laughs> All right. All right. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I know people that are like, well, if, even from primitivists and non-primitivists, well, you're trans, so why are you primitivist? It's like, what? Yeah. Like, they're like, well, you wouldn't have HRT and surgeries. It's like, you were, and here's the thing with non-primitivists, particularly, it's like transness, our transness is so historically relative. Mm -hmm. It really is like this expression of gender. And sure, like when you look at how some hunter gatherers view gender, and this is historically the case that gender and sexuality are closely tied. So being a homosexual man, and there is a, oh my God, I'm blanking on the, the author's name, Society Against the State. I'm blanking on his name now. Oh, well, um, you know, he wrote that in one hunter gatherer group he was, he was living with or was talking about is, he there was one who he performed what were typically female roles yeah. because he was gay uh -huh. because he he wanted to be penetrated he is the quote bottom which historically is essentially related to femininity yes. right, right? Uh, and so sure like our conception of transness is very different than like their conception of gender and i'm not going to say like no, two-spirit people are trans because i'm not applying modern labels to non to like more historic and ever developing identities. That's not my place to apply that mm -hmm. to, but there obviously are affinities. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that yeah, there's not a lot of trans people and maybe there's, I mean, that gets into the fear again. I'm not afraid, but I know also my relation to hormones is different than my friends, but I have a friend who is a radical primitivist, but she is on hormones and she's pursuing surgery. She's like, hey, you know, she makes the joke. Hey, as long as everything happens after I get this, that's all right. Oh, she sometimes makes yeah. that joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's like, but she's also like, fundamentally, yeah, I might struggle with dysphoria, but like, I'm not willing to enslave some African children to make my hormones. And also, like, I'm not willing to kill the earth for it. Because that's what it is. And people are like, well, you don't have to. It's like, I'm sorry, but you do. Right. That's just the truth, whether or not you want to admit it, you know? It's funny, because Karl Marx said that we need to criticize all that exists. But for leftists, it seems that they are unable to do so if it's something that they like. Yes nice <laughs> yeah i we we in a civilized just like the shit on leftists it's just a pastime no good company i appreciate you talking and going into territory right we're such a mind cultural minefield cancellations right and left for people's attitudes uh towards trans and um and yet like like i said and like you said so so much evidence uh, historically and from indigenous cultures past and present uh that the gender is not a binary even when we look at the biological level right there's no such thing as like oh there's only two there's only double x there's only xy like there's such a profusion of genetic information about how gender shows up how sexuality shows up right it, down to our and if we're getting culturally materialist we can't ignore that that um right there's there's mm -hmm. so many so many biological options um and and also like i said like i'm uncomfortable legislating and uh, right. telling people what to think about who and if people should be excluded like that's not that's not what i want to do uh, i don't want any part of that i want i want people to be voluntarists right coming to a movement because they're excited they're interested um and not pushed away because 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 there's prejudice uh, but but grappling with this, I mean, obviously you're getting deeply into it and and looking into the science, the history, the art, the um, you know religion, 
the context of, of, of trans identity, of gender fluidity, non-binary stuff. I think it's amazing. And also that's not who I am. And so for me, I'm, I'm just like completely identified as a hetero woman. Um, and I, and I just want to be in a space of respect for, for things that I, I don't encounter in my subjective experience, right? Like how am I supposed to make a judgment about that? Uh, so thank you for talking right. about that. Yeah. You know, what's funny on the, on the, all the possible thing on the, all the possible identities is like, we choose to make it X, Y, X, X, whatever, but it's like, especially with like sports or something. And this is like a total tangent, but I just thought about this the other day. It's like, so shouldn't like, you know, the, the three body types, ectomorphs, endomorphs, and mesomorphs. Uh, is that really like, a thing? So should, is that a thing? Like what, whatever that is, let's take that as like a thing, like, yeah. because that's as just as bullshit as gender. I mean, it sounds like, a little so racist. We, yeah. I don't know. Okay. I mean, that's like the, you know, the three body yeah. types, like the lawn and lean. Yeah. yeah. It's like, shouldn't we, should we segregate based off body type? Because is it fair for like an ectomorph to compete with a mesomorph? Mm. Like, is that fair? Like to me, like that's really like, or if a, like, I know if, I have friends who are identified as female and they, you know, assigned female at birth with very high testosterone, mm-hmm. right? Should like, and that gets into that. It's like, like that by almost like historic conditions she's not really a woman because mm. she's broad shouldered like i remember in high school she should she could like arm wrestle like football players and win mm-hmm. so it's like is that like I, what was what was the olympic runner she had the natural height testosterone so they didn't let her compete oh, right. like fundamentally yeah. a lot of it comes it naturally comes down to it's it's not oh are you a woman but do you fit my idea of what a woman should be yes which is which is a fundamentally different question uh, yeah but that's, and then of course we come down to like, yeah, we're not policymakers. And I'm so tired of anarchists, whether for like things I would have nest, I kind of agree with, like, yeah, trans people shouldn't be killed, but also like, or they should have access to what they want, you know, all the things that come with that. But like, I'm not a policymaker and I don't believe using the state to enforce her policies, even if they're things I technically would agree with in principle. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not, a, I'm not, I'm not in favor of statecraft. Nope. Yeah. Right. So that, you yeah. Know, no. It is what it is. Uh, keeping on the the topic of controversial conversations. Oh my goodness! COVID nineteen. COVID nineteen was a great thing that happened to the rewilding community, and everyone agreed to disagree, and no one had any hard feelings at all. It was uh, the model um, UN. Yes, it was. Mm-hmm. Uh. Um, I'm curious, where is rewilding going after this, and what important questions do you think it posed for the rewilding movement? Yeah. Well, okay, let's stick with the positive. <laughs> so, okay, I mean, I'll get to the negative. I, I mean, you're asking questions like I'm some sort of, I speak for rewilding, and I don't, definitely don't. I only have my observations. Well, I should and, frame it like this. What is your okay. perspective on re- you. where rewilding is going? Yeah. yeah. I don't want to be the queen issuing her mandate. Um, <laughs> so, so what we saw was that, uh, you know, People who had been accustomed to practicing ancestral skills and being self-sufficient had a great time during COVID because they weren't dependent. Um, and a lot of those folks were living rurally and also made decisions to, you know, whether they ascribe to the idea of like pop COVID pods or like just keeping your infection within a group. Um, they were already living in small, small situations. So all, all the stuff that was going on in urban areas really didn't affect them. Um, that much, except when they went to go visit relatives or <laughs> going to the city for supplies, that's right. sort of, 
Um, I would say the majority of my contacts were very skeptical uh, of the vaccine, of any kind of mandates about masks. They all had this sort of robust idea that their uh, immune systems were strengthened by everything they've been doing, some of them for decades, to build up their health ferocity so that, you know, when they encounter this novel virus, they would, they would come out on top. Um, so that was definitely a prevalent attitude. And, um, and, and people who bristle at any restriction, right? These, these, these are freedom lovers. These are folks who, who have kind of maybe an excessive drive towards autonomy. And so I would say, yeah, for the, and, and I really mostly know the, the communities of the West. So folks in Utah, Montana, Idaho, Washington, California, Oregon, that I was in touch with during COVID, pretty simpatico about these main principles. Then, um, you know, but there were always certain pockets of people who felt vulnerable, who are vulnerable and, uh, and welcomed restrictions and, you know, everything that we, we did to quote unquote, pe keep people safe. And they weren't skeptical of the media. They weren't skeptical of government. And, and uh, you know, so it just divided in those camps, kind of the, the way it did left and right across America. It wasn't really a great gradation or a spectrum. Um, so I would say the minority, and I don't want to call out a certain organization in Portland, but there was only one uh, ancestral skills gathering that uh, mandated the vaccine for all participants. And, you know, some would say, well, that's great, because if, 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 if the majority of these gatherings um, weren't vaccination only, then the people who needed that had a place to go. So I see that argument. Um, but I also, you know, personally found that mandates and any kind of state incursion was uh, reminiscent of <laughs> governments that we can't speak of that limited people and uh, kept them quartered in ghettos and, and concentration camps. So, <laughs> right. It was for me, I was like, what? We're going to turn away folks who chose not to get vaccinated that personally I was offended by that, even though I did, you know, come out, I, I got vaccinated mostly because uh, my children go to school in Berkeley and there were several months where I could not enter a restaurant, uh, take my child to the doctor, you know, even enter their school without showing this stupid card. So I also had that faith and fearlessness in health routine and outdoor fitness that I, okay one of these things, these things aren't going to harm me. Um, and so I think even having that mental belief assists with the neuroimmunology that goes on. Whether, whether I got vaccinated or I got COVID, I felt strong, right? Um, so I think that helps in, in, the, in the recovery process. Um, so, so yeah, it was complex. It was difficult. The upshot was that a lot of people got outdoors. A lot of people decided that they wanted to learn skills and uh, grow their own food and stop using toilet paper. There were many fun discussions and uh, all the rewilders had a favorite, right? Cause we're always going out there and pooping in the woods. Um, so, so lots of funny, resourceful uh, nature-based activities happened as a result. And I think it did shift people's minds in the aggregate that uh, your dependency on the system is a vulnerability and uh, you must take steps to overcome that. So wrapping, I'm wrapping it up and putting a bow on it saying, yes, it was ultimately positive for rewilding, I think. Yeah. What do you, do you, think? What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, it's weird. Cause I look back when it started and I'm like, really, I 
I was hesitant to get the vaccine, but I was I was going to get it, and I did. I never got the booster stuff, right? I just got the two doses. Um, and I'm fairly open about this. I haven't talked about it on the podcast a lot because it's not super relevant. But, you know, looking back, like, I'm like, ooh, I'm not – not that I, I would never change in the vaccine, but I looked at the lockdowns and the way it worked. And I'm like, uh, no, I don't agree with that. Because it's, again, like, are we okay to legislate because we agree with something? Like, yeah, was I staying alone away from people because I'm not very, like, face-to-face social? Sure. But does that mean I should be able to tell people the entire fucking country mm-hmm. that you should be able to? Like, I and then the other side of that is by the nature of society i'm forced to work right Mm -hmm. and so i'm going to be around people and i'm a teacher yep right i wasn't a teacher when it happened but i worked i was i guess i was student teaching right after like the sanctions started to lift and then i was working you know i was doing clinical work and then i was working in a grocery store and it's like i was around people so i wore the mask and i've only recently stopped masking and this is a lot more personal than you were asking because, again, I'm not super into the rewilding, like, movements. I do a lot of stuff on my own, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like, yeah, like, it forced me, like, more recently talking to more people like yourself or seeing more or less not really being in the conversations but reading those conversations. Mm. Um, because I typically not like to touch this shit with a 10-foot yeah. pole just people get really angry. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, but it's also, like... I should, I should allow, it's just a contradiction of I'm forced to be in society and engage with it in a lot of ways. So I understand where people are coming from when they're anarchists, but didn't necessarily apply what I think was the, anar- was an anarchist solution mm. or an anarchist response. I see where that comes from. And I'm not, some people are like, oh, you're bodily fascists, you're liberal authoritarians. It's like, no, 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 no. Like understand where people are coming from. If they're immunocompromised or especially if you work in rewilding and the importance of elders, particularly indigenous elders, yep, yep. and you want to have them, but they're not, they don't feel safe. It's like, but then it's like, what are you going to have two different events at the same time for those for vaccinating those for not? Because then that just looks like segregation and that's the same problem, I think. So it's like, there. the way I see it is I'm tired of people thinking they have the right or had the right answer. Because mm, no, you didn't. Yep. There was no right answer to this yeah. outside of, oh, well, we could have just gotten gotten rid of everything and then returned to hunter-gatherers. It's like, but yeah, you could say that at any point, but that's not happening, mm-hmm. right? They're just not. Yeah. So I don't know. I think the importance for me was it forced us to look our isolation that was already existing in the face. Yes. And like, this is the mainstream. We had to deal with that. We had to deal with the underlying fact that more and more youth are on antidepressants, antipsychotics. Right, that was that was worsened or at least brought the public public eye more so because of the lockdowns and because of at home schooling. Yeah. Uh, yep. And as a teacher, surprise, the American education system fucking sucks. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know more, and it really kind of brought out a lot of like, is public education is that something anarchists like? How do we engage with that? Because yeah, it's propaganda mm-hmm. in a lot of way. You know what I mean? And it made me confront a lot of like you know a lot of what is my role in all of this um as a fucking english teacher <laughs> yeah right <laughs> you know there you are grappling sensitively again look at you yeah, <laughs> yeah. and it, 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 it's it's so i feel like we uh we anarchists we folks who who've kind of come to these truths independently from whatever path 
we uh, we obsess about contradictions, right? So like mm-hmm. our values and then what are our actions and are they aligning? I mean, I, th- I think it's like when you look at the Myers-Briggs personality test, it's almost like, oh my God, we must have the same personality that's so values driven and really irritated by contradiction, um, which is a whole other tangent. But 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 I've, I'm kind of coming to the point where it's, no, the world we're living in is so complex right now. There are so many ways that I'm violating my own values every single day. Uh, and then certain people choose to take a stand. So I have this wonderful friend, a uh, single mom, who has decided never buying packaged meat again. Any meat she gets, she's going to either have roadkill or farm it herself. And I'm just like, yes, I completely 100% support that. And there have been times in my life that I've done that, but I cannot do that every day. Um, right. And so people kind right. of line up and take these stands. And, you know, right. So many anarchists would, would be like, absolutely not. You cannot engage with uh, the mind factory that is public education. And, but yet you, you're there doing it and more power to you because you're influencing, you're bringing these thoughts uh, to, to the kids in that system. So I just think, yeah, we're coming back to this theme of like <laughs> fearlessness, but also em- embrace the contradiction. It's so complex. We don't have control. And, but it is important to, to when you do feel motivated to take that stand on something, right? So for me, yeah. it's about, I've got to be outside as much as possible. Like that's my number one thing. Um, and other people are fine mm-hmm. with me and, and I'm okay with them being inside. Fine. Choose, find your thing. Uh, but, but this relentless critique of folks like us, because we are still reliant on civilization at the same time that we're taking it. I'm so okay. I'm so over that. I mean, what is it? It's the idea of like, we should fix society somewhat to get you a part of society. Very curious. You know? But yeah, I mean, this this whole kind of conversation here reminds me of Kevin Tucker's piece from a while ago, maybe 2013-ish. Which is funny because I was in eighth grade at that time or graduating eighth grade. Uh, I'm only 24. Uh, his essay, I am complicit, uh-huh. right? Like we are like, whether you want to admit it or not, like you are complicit every time you, t- I turn the computer on to record this. Anytime I buy dog food for my dog, yep. right? Anytime I turn my car on, that's just the nature of it. I am complicit. Every single one of us is complicit, but that does should not imply a guilt complex that should inspire you to to lessen your impact or to struggle to like remove the conditions for everyone being complicit Mm -hmm. you know that's fundamentally for me like in relation to colonialism it's like are you gonna sit fucking whine and be like oh woe is me and then you put the fucking what is it those signs in this home we believe science we believe black lives you know what i mean it's like okay tell tell me you're like a you're yeah, human yeah, trans rights are human rights. I fucking hate those signs so goddamn much. <laughs> I, it's not about rights, you moron, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's fundamentally to them, it is a guilt complex of a first world citizen. Mm-hmm. I know. Right. And as uh, opposed to, hey, let me go and actually change anything or struggle to make my life better. I mean, don't get me started. The the bumper stickers, the signs, the t-shirts, all this virtue signal is completely empty right. in it was it was just crazy to me, like walking around these extremely tony wealthy homely hills, every one of them with a BLM sign out. Oh, really? Black lives matter so much to you <laughs> that, that, that you've made it completely impossible 
for any uh, people of color to feel comfortable here. Thanks. I mean, it's it just the virtue signaling right. and the, the contradictions. But like I said, I, I excuse the contradictions. Those people in their minds, they're, they're well-meaning, and that's certainly taking a step for them to align themselves with uh, with the communities that have been right. slaughtered by the cops. So, um, no, I know. Right. I mean, it's interesting. You say contradiction. The word I tend to use is tension, that there's tension in everything, mm, right? It's pulling I like that. in two different ways, mm -hmm. right? If you think about like a rubber band, right? You're pulling it in two different ways or more than three, two ways, right? There's that, it can snap at any point and it has to go one way or the other. That right. is and great. It's interesting. Like, what does that mean? Thank you. I like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's it's wonderful what I get when I all these metaphors I make when I teach when I teach literature. It's kind of burned into my head. <laughs> yeah. Hey, no, I mean, and kudos yeah. to you for teaching. Teaching is such a uh I mean it's such a it's a great thing to do for your own mind, you know? And um so so it's just in a, in a way to keep perpetually learning and, and sharing that. So I hate to tell you this, Jessica, but it fucking sucks. No. <laughs> it's fucking horrible. It okay, then you no, need to get really. out of it. Not really. You need to get out of it. It's, I'm, tr I'm trying. It's not that bad. It's just, it's a whole lot of things that happen in like the, the politics of school. Mm -hmm. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? They just, with every, with every job, it's, I couldn't imagine doing anything else unless it was like outdoor education mm -hmm. as opposed to like typical which is what I would ideally like to do in the future. But this is totally unrelated to your your book, which is, again, me called Why We Need to Be Wild, One Woman's Quest for Ancient Human Answers to 21st Century Problems. So, Jessica, how can people find your book and support you? Thank you. Well, my website is my full name, jessicacarewcraft.com. And on that, I have press articles I've written, upcoming events. There is a book tour happening. Um, across mm -hmm. the west coast mostly but also if you want me to come to your community please invite me and if you um i also have resources on the website for all the things i talk about in the book so the wilderness skills education the primitive skills gatherings a lot of the artisans and radical rewilders that i profile and spent time with that's all available on the website um i hate to say it but it does help the book and the message if folks buy it from amazon but I completely understand if uh, you'd rather get a free copy, <laughs> which hopefully it'll be posted on libgen. Um, but or or supporting your local bookstore or ordering from any other more virtuous. Uh, on is that a phone out here? Is that a phone out here in the background? There's, no, there's no phones here. No, I'm out in the woods. I don't know what you're hearing. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you. Uh, I'm also on Instagram at at, at why we need to be wild. Awesome. And is there anything else that you maybe wanted to touch on or anything that was important that we didn't totally flesh out in the last couple of minutes? Here? Uh, you're awesome. Just thoroughly 100% you. We can connect more. And I am sure that your many of your listeners are just like you and smarter than us and are going to think about stuff. And I welcome being in touch with We Need to Build Community. Uh, and you're doing an amazing job. I'm just so thrilled to be on that have this time with you. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's, it's interesting having, again, someone from a very different background, right? Because I'm from the Midwest, right? I'm from Illinois, and I still, unfortunately, live in Illinois. Um, you know, Why are you Midwest really shaming? No, 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 no. I grew up in Iowa. No. No, don't Midwest no. shame. No. See, it's nothing about the, no, don't get me wrong. There's nothing about the Midwest. <laughs> it's all that Illinois sucks. It's in, I love the Midwest, and I fucking hate Illinois. That's... <laughs> 
Oh, you know, God. but yeah, so it's interesting. I, I I take so much joy in being able to talk to people who are of different backgrounds and different perspectives, which is what I want Uncivilized in the Z, you know, the larger Uncivilized project, as we call it, to do is to like foster dialogue and bring people together. And I've met so many wonderful people through this podcast, including yourself, who I probably normally wouldn't have mm. met. Or if I did, we would the same space to have these types of conversations. So like, I'm so A, grateful to have this platform and B, that you've come to be a part of it. This is a lot more sentimental than most episodes. You know, it's the time we just scream oh. and say stupid shit. This is much more thoughtful. <laughs> Good. I'm glad to hear. I'm glad. I'm glad I brought them to the podcast. Yay. Yeah. Awesome. Well, this has been Artemis with the Uncivilized podcast with Jessica Kraft. Thank you for listening.